Welcome everybody to episode 34 of the Hopeful Majority. Today we've got on former member of Congress, Joe Kennedy on to talk about his leadership, about politics, about where we are. I thought it was fascinating to bring on a democratic perspective, especially given the past few guests and also where we are in our political moment. We talked about a bunch of things. And importantly, as you can tell from my voice, I am no longer sick. Yes, I am no longer sick, but my glasses are still broken, so I've got my backups on. Now, if you're on pot, if you're on Spotify and Apple, I guess that doesn't matter, but if you are on YouTube, the glasses make a big difference. Anyway, we've got a great conversation today, really fascinating insight. As you know, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, we're building a show for people of diverse viewpoints to come and have interactions, have conversation, importantly, to understand what drives us. So with that, let's get into my monologue, and then we'll get into the conversation with Joe Kennedy. my conversation with Joe Kennedy. So before every political guest comes on, before anybody with a big name or somebody in our politics that is associated one party or the other, you know, we had this with presidential candidates Vivek Ramaswamy, with Andrew Yang, with Marianne Williamson, and also we're going to have this with Joe Kennedy, uh, who's not obviously a presidential candidate, but he's somebody that has a brand name in our politics that I want you to think about this conversation not from the lens of party. Take off the glasses of party label for just a second. And I want you to see this conversation through who they are as people, who they are as individuals. What are they expressing? What are their ideas? And Joe and I have a fascinating dialogue that ranges from everywhere from why he believes in public service to what the coalition of the future looks like to the work that he's doing with the Democratic Party in Mississippi and Alabama. Yes, you heard that right. The Democratic Party is doing stuff and work in Mississippi and Alabama, a place where you wouldn't normally associate the Democratic label with. And what's fascinating about this conversation is two fronts. The first is that we discuss what it means to bring people of very different ideas together, but importantly, what it means to actually see each other's stories, to empathize with each other's understandings. In fact, later on in this conversation, there'll be a portion where we talk about what what is what is the commonality between a Cape Cod fisherman in Massachusetts and a coal miner in West Virginia. Surprise, they both have an identity that is tied to their job. You know, we talk about what it means to be a leader making decisions at high levels and what it means to actually understand how those decisions impact your constituents. And so it was really interesting to hear that there might actually be a coalition in our politics. Believe it or not, there's a coalition in our politics that actually could bring together and stitch together a Trump voter with an inner city person that lives in New York City with somebody that has deep aspirations, with with a faith-based background, that in fact, there might be a lot of policy issues. There might be some credible issues that span our parties and our ethnicities and our demographics and actually touch who we are as people. There might be something there. But the second thing that was fascinating to this conversation is not even something that I was necessarily intending to do, but it came up a lot, which is that our political leaders, you know, the, the people that we see through the news, through the media, are not only humans breaking news, but oftentimes have intentions that might not be evil, that might not be bad. Now, you're like, that, Manu, that sounds really cliche. Where are you going with this? Well, here's where I'm going with this. You know, I had a conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy. I think that was in our October episode. So you can go back and see that conversation right before the second Republican presidential debate. And what was really interesting about that conversation was that him and I touched a lot of different topics and it became apparent throughout that conversation, at least to me, that all of the media characters of of not necessarily, you know, what he believes in or all those things, but why he believes what he believes, 
I think we're not that accurate. I actually think that he believes that the United States is a country that needs to be defended, that needs to be advanced, and that he has a deep aspiration to help the country, and that he's doing this because he cares, not because he's some evil, crazy xenophobe. And then, you know, you have conversations with like Andrew Yang, something like Marianne Williamson. I had this conversation with Joe Kennedy that you're about to hear. And what was so interesting about this conversation with Joe was that you might associate him with a certain brand of politics. You might think that he's got certain beliefs and that he believes a certain thing. And you might associate certain intentions. And yet it, it became pretty clear to me in this conversation that, you know, I think he just wants the country to be better. And he has a certain set of ideas that he believes in, that he stands for, and that he wants to advance. And that it might be worth giving somebody like that a listen. You know, you see this with political leaders across the board. And this was the more interesting point to me, which is that we are quick at this moment to judge each other's intentions. We ascribe intentionality to anybody that we agree with or disagree with. And importantly, everybody that we disagree with, we ascribe evil intentions to and everybody that we agree with, we think are beautiful, amazing angels that can only want good for the world. And what's shocking, but it shouldn't be shocking, is that actually a lot of people that you disagree with also have real life stories and real intentions and believe in a country and that they also want things to be good. And, and, and that might sound cliche, and yet I think that we live at this moment where we might want to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Not acquiesce to each other's beliefs, but give people the benefit of the doubt. Why is that important? Because then you can actually have the debate. You can have the discussion. Because then we don't start at the level of ad hominem personal attacks and conspiracy theories on the right or the left or wherever. But we start at the goal of, you want good for the country, I want good for the country, we're part of the hopeful majority, let's have the discussion. Boom. Breaks through the outraged industrial complex. Suddenly we get somewhere. So it's time to get somewhere with our conversations, and I hope you find the conversation with Joe Kennedy to be interesting. Let's get into the dialogue. Joe, welcome to the hopeful majority, sir. Uh, I'm grateful to be here and more hopeful already. So there we go. I know. I This is like tonic water for, for everybody that, that does some work in politics or democracy or whatever. So so I'm glad we ticked one, one part of the checkbox. I mean, at least for me so far. Um, and we could all, um, I think... I think most folks would love to be um, more hopeful and encouraged um, by the day these days. So uh, again, um, thanks for already getting back. Getting absolutely, there. absolutely. And of course, like there, there's a lot of cliche to to the hopeful part of this, and and I, I actually will get into it a little bit. And I'm no no stranger to to saying cliche things. And I was like thinking, where should we start this conversation? Because there's so many different ways we could take this. You know, your time in, in Congress. I'm curious about polarization. This episode is is actually dropping after we had a deep analysis of like the nature of polarization. But I said, let me throw all that out the window for a quick second. I actually, start with the fact that you and I met in some random airport terminal, and you were, you know, I think your kids were running around. And what I, I and I was thinking, like, should I come up? I think that's Joe Kennedy. Should I come up to him? I'm, I'm very curious, especially as a younger person. And where I really wanted to start this conversation was by observing the fact that you were so incredibly approachable as as just a human being and, and incredibly authentic. And honestly, where I want to take this is, is given your years in public service and given, you know, the context of your name and all the work you do, what allows you to maintain that level of just approachability and, and honesty um, to just have a conversation? Oh, uh, well, man, that, that's very kind of you. I think um, as most, and, and I might say all, but probably not all, but close, um, 
parents of young children will tell you it is the most humbling um, <laughs> experience on the face of the planet. You saw two little kids that were running around an airport terminal um, with uh, very little holding them back from anything. Um, and, you know, it, it is one thing um, <clears throat> to, uh, you know, uh, particularly when you're traveling and, and juggling all of the, the tensions and anxiety and everything else that comes with it to um, have the best laid plans. And then you have little kids that just don't care. <laughs> and, right. So, um, you know, my, my wife actually started this organization uh, dedicated to overhauling our child care system in our country okay. because um, it's broken and it's unaffordable and inaccessible. And, and study after study will tell you it's the best um, expenditure of public dollars that we could we could make and we still don't mm -hmm. do it and, and all these broken reasons why. Um, but a part of that is also, it is a shared experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, some stranger that I've never met before is going to have gone through that same parenting journey of young children that I have, and we might not have anything else in common, but we got that. And I guarantee you their kids have done something crazy in a car, in a grocery store, at an airport, traveling, whenever you don't want them to, they will do something, right? Um, it's just kids and it's just what, you know, it's what happens as, as parents. And there's that a commonality that that connects across those differences because mm -hmm. of a very deep and profound shared experience. Um, and so, um, you know, I think uh, kids are great in that um, they they provide that level of humility, whether you want it or not. Um, they provide that commonality. Um, they can be incredibly frustrating. Um, they can also um, be incredibly funny. And mm -hmm. sometimes they are both at the same time or well, not, not, well, not well, short distance between the two. Well, that that's that's what we should we should we should put that on the record is that the way out of our polarization is to have kids, which will engender deep amounts of humility. And and <laughs> and, and, and I, I would ask you, like, you know, obviously, I, I don't have kids. Um, I'm I'm I don't know, relatively young. Um, but I think a lot about the role that humility plays in the place that we are in our country. And what I'm just curious about is. It seems like as I talk to more and more people, especially those of higher stature, those that hold jobs that you might say are quote unquote responsible or they, they're in key decision-making roles, uh, some of them are able to be humble pretty extraordinarily well and actually you'd be surprised. And others, I think, have a harder time with humility. You obviously mentioned kids, but is what about humility makes it such that some people are able to be relatively humble and learn and, and keep an open mind and others seem to be very set in their ways and seem to be pretty uh, zealous in the way that they look at the world? You know, it, it's a great question. I don't know if I've got a great, you know, a, a super clear answer for you. And I do think that um, linking a couple of, of topics you wanted to uh, discuss, I think um, the like, like most things in life, some of these are intention, right? There's the humility of um, that I think great leaders show the, uh, I saw some study years ago saying that one of the great characteristics or characteristics that a number of great leaders had in common with self-awareness, um, what they do well, what they don't, how they are, are perceived by others, self-aware enough to understand their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, and to then figure out systems and support structures and other people to make sure that you strengthen those weaknesses, right? So that, that what you would want to do. Um, and all of that makes an awful lot of sense. The other challenge here, though, is as you move up those those roles of responsibility, of authority, um, 
they become there, there are decisions that only persons of authority can make. There's decisions mm -hmm. that only the president can make. There's decisions that only a CEO of a company can make um, because there's going to be consequences to them. And we basically say the people, you know, at the tops of these organizations have to be the ones that make them because they are also going to be held accountable to them, and they have to be held accountable to them. Particularly in a public space, probably always, but certainly now, that is a contested environment. And so whatever President Biden does today, he's going to be criticized for. Literally whatever side of the bed he gets up on, he's going to be criticized for. Um, whatever he had for breakfast, he's going to be criticized for. Um, whatever time he goes to bed, he's going to be criticized for. And so you have this odd kind of desire, if not requirement from a public of saying, we want people to be humble. We want people to be approachable. We want people to be human. Mm -hmm. um, but we are going to, in those roles, we're going to criticize, examine, ridicule um, every single decision that they make, and sometimes literally almost every breath that they take. Mm. And if you are in that position of getting criticized constantly, no matter what you do, you can't be constantly learning because you're getting criticized for whatever it is that you did. And you'd be criticized if you did what they want, you'd be criticized for something else. So, and you're human. You're and human. You're human. Sorry. And so you can't. So at that point, you have to kind of you see this this happen, and I certainly saw it happen. I, I did it when you were in um, positions of uh, high levels of public scrutiny, where you just have to make a decision and you stick to it. Because if you let yourself get swayed one way or the other, you'll never you're, you're going to be paralyzed by it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, how do you then hold those two things in tension of being humble enough to be able to acknowledge that you might be wrong, but convinced enough in your course that you're willing to stay it even despite mm -hmm. that criticism because if you don't um you're gonna get criticized by somebody else or someone else even if you get praised for that or your real critics if you change course are going to criticize you for changing course because you didn't have the backbone to stick to it so it's hard there's there's actually a fascinating um distinction that you make though there of the process of making a decision and what you do after making a decision. And I wasn't even thinking about taking this conversation this way, but I have to bring this up. Our mutual friend, um, David Gergen, and I wouldn't I wouldn't call him a friend of mine. I would say he's like to me, he's like the Dumbledore of politics. But one thing that <laughs> I asked, I asked, I asked David, you know, what do you think uh, some presidents would say is the best quality to have? And it goes to this process of decision making. He actually brought up um, someone that you, you, you're you related to, John F. Kennedy. And one of the things that he said that President Kennedy said was that the most important virtue to him was not actually courage, it was curiosity. And he actually brought up the example of, of navigating the Bay of Pigs uh, at, at crisis. And also, I don't know what this thumbs up sign is, but I think the AI algorithm agrees. <laughs> um, and he also brought up the process of how JFK made decisions that got us out of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And again, it went to the core of, of being curious. Um, and then once he made a decision, it was final, and then you have to stick to it. Mm -hmm. How do you engender sort of that process of curiosity at a time where it seems like you are rewarded for sticking to your guns, and not only sticking to your guns, but saying the craziest thing that comes out of your gun so that the craziest people in your base follow you and vote for you. Like, how do you navigate those two realities? I don't think our system is doing it well at the moment, right? Um, I think it's gotten, look, governance is always hard. Um, trying to, to, um, to find ways to, um, 
to create consensus out of a diverse nation of now 330 million people with different backgrounds and experiences and religions and values statements and all the rest of it are like is incredibly challenging. And look, I'm not one to wholly look at this in rose colored glasses and think, gosh, it was so much better before. Nah, I'm not sure it was one. And two, if we talk about before being, you know, and, and look, I've got great respect for the founders of our country. They were brilliant Protestant white men, but they were Protestant white men. And their brilliance pertained, they, they created the founding documents for a company that was, that were only a very small subset of the country had agency, right? And that were rich, landed, white Protestant men. No one else counted. And so when you say, when you hear folks say, oh gosh, it was you know so great. Why don't we turn back the clock to a time when it was uh, perhaps our politics more genteel? Yeah, we're, we're a much smaller segment of our society was able to say, to feel like, to, to have that agency and to say that they were, were, were seen and heard and represented. So I don't want to say like it was so great back then. I will say that the incentive structure around our politics today is not one that actually incentivizes the hard work of compromise. It is one where that is vilified in my perspective. Um, it is one in which um, you, the folks that are trying to find a way forward through these incredibly difficult and complex challenges and questions, it is so much harder to reach that conclusion um, and come up with a consensus where in today's day and age, everybody's going to dislike it hmm. and be able to satisfy your base and say, well, I voted against X or I'm not going to sign on to Y because it doesn't do A, B, and C. Well, hmm. it's not going to do A, B, and C, but if you're going to try to get, you know, Lindsey Graham to sign on to a bill with Senator Elizabeth Warren, there's going to have to be compromise. <laughs> on both of them. Yeah. Right? Like they're, they're just, and so does either one of them that need, I use them hypothetically, obviously, but odds are not, neither one of them are going to love the bill. They're going to find reasons why each one of them isn't going to like it, but there's still times where you have to do it anyway, because the country needs you to do it. Um, and right now our politics are, it's a lot safer for not, not meaning those two individually, but it's a lot safer for our politicians to criticize, point, throw stones, and not take that leap, because you're not rewarded for doing so, than to be ideologically pure, hmm. um, even if it means that we end up in a government shutdown or we're perpetuating systems of old through CRs or through you know um, through kind of political safety, rather than doing what our country needs us to, to do to, to solve some of these problems. So you've brought up the, the C word compromise, and you you mentioned the founding of our country, right? And, and some of the challenges around how the country is founded, and yet it's got a set of ideas that are aspirational. And 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 there's that inherent tension of how do you think about the past and yet hold up those aspirational ideas, something that requires, I think, some inherent compromise or understanding. You brought up Senator Lindsey Graham, you brought up Senator Elizabeth Warren, the necessity for some sort of compromise to make things happen. And naturally, I think a lot of people in my generation, whether they're conservative or liberal, this comes up a lot, which is, is it right to have a system that runs on compromise as a necessity? Or do we go the path of a system where you can have more swifter decision making? And in fact, sometimes it gets as extreme as 
should we actually ditch democracy as a whole and look at what we might define as more authoritarian models of governance? Because compromise seems, in a lot of people would say compromise is actually taking steps backwards. How do you like think through that tension as somebody that has seen the machinations of power? And I actually come down pretty strongly on one side of that, but I'm curious how you think about that. Well, look, you don't have to ditch democracy to come up with something that is <clears throat> more responsive to the will of the people, right? I mean, a, a parliamentary system of government, right? Like party wins an election, they appoint the prime minister, they kind of move forward, but there can be referendums and no confidence votes and the coalition can, can collapse, right? If you don't win the outright majority, you got to get certain parties to come in to create the coalition so that you can govern. One party walks away, the whole thing falls down. So you can do that, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's not saying, hey, how do you have this arcane thing of an electoral college or how do you navigate through these um, these challenges and tensions and the power, the electoral and political power that is now rested or rests in rural states, smaller states. Um, that to be clear, part of this was actually an issue back when in our founding, particularly smaller states versus bigger states. They might not be the same states, right, as they are now, but that was an issue that they, they had to deal with. I think one is, at least the way I think about it, not to say the right way, but the way I think about it is recognizing the brilliance of our founders, hmm. but recognizing they were also human and that they came up with solutions for the time, but that solutions for the time back in, you know, the mid to late 1700s wasn't necessarily the great same solutions for 2024, that time was going to have to evolve and things were going to have to evolve. Um, one, uh, two is, is the recognition that, look, do I wish that President Biden could have acted more swiftly um, and more directly to execute on what I think were his, some of his visions for the, the way in which we could address some of the ch longstanding challenges this country is facing and putting us on a pathway to a better future. Yeah, absolutely. Of course I do. Mm. Do I want to create those systems and put them in place so that Donald Trump could have used them for four years before or might be able to use them ahead, uh, you know, a year, literally a year from basically now? Absolutely not. Mm. And so, you know, part of this question, right, and this goes back to, to you know, however far back you want to go with this, but John Rawls writes about this stuff philosophically, mm -hmm. right? About a veil of ignorance, right? What would you, what kind of society would you set up if you didn't know what you were going to have on the out, on the other side of it? What kind of structures would you want in place to provide and protect a democracy if you didn't know who won an election? Hmm. What incentives, what, what safety net would you want to have in a society if you didn't know if you were going to need it or not? Mm -hmm. um, and if you ask that question, I'm not sure you come up with some of the policies and procedures and outcomes that we're looking at in, in today's society. What are some changes that you think ought to happen or certain policies and procedures that you think should be changed to make our system more effective? Look, I think um, I think they're big. I think some of this is, is policy. Part of this is also part of this is, is doesn't have to do with the policies. It has to do with the ex actually exercise of governance. And part of it is also responsibility, right? So uh, I, I'd break it down in a couple of levels. Policy-wise, look, I think things like um, I would put term limits on Supreme Court justices, right? And there's a, a bill that I um, uh, co-authored when I was in Congress that um, basically set up a mechanism where each president got to appoint one member of the Supreme Court every term, right? Mm -hmm. And it just took the uncertainty out. If there happened to be other vacancies, you brought somebody in that that had, had termed off, right? So you didn't have these existential fights over um, 
over what the context of the court was going to be. One party wins the presidency for a whole long, you know, a long time. The, the control of the court might switch. But it's not like all of a sudden one person is going to go support three justices in four years. That's not going to happen. Um, and it provides some regularity to it, some stability to it. And by the way, we haven't seen a system where one president has one, the, the president of one party has controlled the White House for uh, the last time it was three terms was obviously um, uh, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, right? H.W. Bush. Um, so it's been a while since that actually happened. So it just mm -hmm. takes attention down around it a bit. Um, but I think that's one big policy uh, component to it. One part matter that, that, you know, when we talked a, a bit before, pardon that um, the airplane terminal, mm -hmm. um, is the fact that in the actual exercise of democracy, we're not we're not exercising it equally. And so part of what a democracy requires, it's not going to be throughout societies, capitalist or otherwise, uh, republic or autocratic, political power is not uniform. I don't think there's ever a structure where it's going to be wholly uniform. But it still requires it to be kind of within degrees of uniformity, right? You can't mm -hmm. have somebody that has an awful lot of political power, economic power, and somebody that has very little, and then call it an equal society. It's just not the way it's, it's actually gonna work. And part of what I see at the moment is that those structures have become dramatically unequal. Part of that though, is because of the way in which our political structures have adapted to the systems that we put in place and perpetuated, right? So you don't have nearly the level of investment in civil society structures, organizations, uh, nonprofit groups, spaces for people to come together and advocate for issues in their community for the betterment of how they define it, their community, hmm. that we need to across the country. You got a lot of it in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. On the left, you don't have nearly as much of it in uh, parts of Alabama or Mississippi or Oklahoma or North Dakota on the left. Mm -hmm. There's parts of the country that you'll have plenty of it on the right, um, but you won't have nearly as much of it in Cambridge, Massachusetts mm. on the right. What does that mean? Now that look, local communities should have the ability to decide, obviously to some extent, their political representation, viewpoint, um, and and communities, right? People might move to be with more people that are aligned with their viewpoint. I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is where our system becomes so stratified that those systems essentially give voice to organizing power, economic power, solely to one side of an aisle at the expense of somebody else. And those voices get crowded out. And as that happens, then all of a sudden you have a, a population that doesn't feel like they have agency, that doesn't have ownership, that isn't invested, that then ha starts to see their political and economic outcomes taken for granted, not seen, not heard, rolled over. Yeah. And then that creates a backlash. Why? Because and they don't actually have anything to hold on to and yeah. to be able to influence the outcome of and they just look around and say no matter what happens you guys decide what you're you're deciding what happens to me and i don't get to have a seat at that table and when that is felt broad-based um you got a big problem and there's a lot there when it comes to the backlash and the challenges that happen. And one of my favorite things to do on the show is to put myself in the shoes of somebody that might disagree with you that's right now listening to this and say, hmm, I wonder what they would ask Joe. And, you know, what, what's funny about that position is, oh, my God, my brain is doing intellectual gymnastics all the time. And sometimes I'm like, I wonder what I believe, because I'm so focused on this, you know, as some might critique genteel sort of civil politics, I would say is a desire to genuinely try to find truth. But let me do that for a second, which is let me put myself in the shoes of somebody that might disagree with you. 
right? And they're thinking, all right, you know, um, Joe's got all these fascinating sort of focuses on reforms. Your thought is that we've got to build a system in which people feel like they've got a voice at the table. We have to be there in that respect. And yet, I don't feel included at all in, in the Democratic Party's vision. Right. And let's say that I'm somebody living in a small town. And in fact, let's say that I'm somebody living in one of the communities that you're servicing right through through the project that you're focused on groundwork. You know, let's say that I'm in rural Mississippi. What is your argument to me for why you see me in the vision that you're talking about, which is building a system in which there's relative equal exercise of power? Talk to me as if I'm somebody that is critical of that vision or is confused about how that vision actually relates to my perspective. So I'm, I don't want to be panacea here and say one, <clears throat> you know. And, and, and the right answer might be that you might not be able to convince that person. That's okay. But I want to. No, I, I would actually kind of almost take the other side of it, which is if you were to say to that person, right, uh -huh. um, uh, guy from rural Mississippi, um, you know, somebody from West Virginia to pick a deep populist red or conservative red part of the country and say, I mean, I, I think it's actually an interesting conversation to think about how that that plays out, right? Like, okay, we end up um, having a conversation at a gas station, diner, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And somebody says, you know, your vision for America is absolutely, you know, you're some crazy commie, whatever else, leftist, blah, 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 kind of, you know, um, I don't want to have anything to do with what, you have, what you, your vision is. My first question would be, fair, great. What do you think my vision is? Hmm. Because chances are, for some of those people, perhaps not all, but for some, what they're going to hear is not what I'm actually advocating for and trying to bring about with regards to supporting local hmm. structures. But what they it's might want to hear. It, yeah. No, it could be what opponents of that effort are going to, how they are going to categorize that effort and parrot it to that individual, right? So it would be what somebody that isn't actually advocating for more uniform distribution of economic and political power would be clamoring for and what the critiques that they are going to say to that individual that I believe. In. Hmm. So that's actually not what I believe. That's what some critic of mine is telling you, I believe. So like, first off, what do you think I believe? Hmm. Then there's the question of whether I could say, well, that's great. That's actually not what I believe, whether you're going to believe what I say or not, which is a bigger part to this at the moment where I do have some doubt that there's a, anything that I could tell that individual over said conversation at said diner that is actually going to convince them that I'm not lying to them in that moment, which mm. is sad, but true. But what that gets to, Manu, is that the broader part that we're trying to address of groundwork is that there are people that are trusted, right? I would say when I was campaigning, look, my job to you as a candidate is to knock on more doors, shake more hands, have more meats on a stick than any other candidate in this race. But I also recognize that, you know, I'm sitting here in your living room up in front of this rally trying to get you to support me. That you know, I'm 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 trying to sell you on me. I I want your vote. Hmm. These elections are going to be decided in line at Dunkin' Donuts, right on the sideline of kids' soccer game, where somebody else, some perceived neutral third party, that says, "Hey, I'm going to you know I'm going to go vote for Joe," or "I think you should vote for Joe," or "I'm happy about I'm excited about supporting Joe." That's going to be the validation that moves it. There are trusted voices within community, any community, that people are willing to get behind and support. And what Groundwork's trying to do is say, okay, well, who are those people? Hmm. How can we support them? Not to say, hey, necessarily go vote Democrat, but to say, hey, you've got an issue in your community that you are trying to address. You know, environmental degradation, mm -hmm. childcare, yeah. um, 
need to, to expand the use of Narcan, right? Opioids, whatever that is, um, schooling, policing, et cetera, Met, access to mental health care. Let's go find those individuals that are our trusted advisors, messengers, conveyors, purveyors to a community and support them because that community has the right to be able to decide and determine kind of their outlook. What is the best way to reach those issues? But 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 yep. really quickly, sorry, Sarah, I just wanna I wanna emphasize this thing though that's so fascinating about what you're doing, which is if somebody thinks of the Democratic Party or a Joe Kennedy or a Joe Biden or you name it, their their favorite Democrat, they're gonna think and it, and it goes to a critique that you pointed out, they're gonna think He's never coming to Mississippi. He's never come to Alabama. He's never coming to West Virginia. The, he, the Democrats have no business here. They don't care about us, right? Or you ask a Republican. We had on presidential candidates on the Republican side on the show. You ask them and they'll say, you know, people think that they don't want to go to New York. They don't want to go to California. And yet you haven't given up. In fact, you want to reach those those folks, those folks in quotes, to their issues. Like, why, why are you thinking in this way? Like, I don't want to, I, I, I don't. I mean, couplefold, right? Like there's a, <laughs> a bunch of pieces of this. One, I said in a whole bunch of different areas of this country when I was mm -hmm. out campaigning people, Democrats believe in you. We see you, we see you and we value you, not just for the person that you are, but the potential that you have. We want you in the field, we want you on the team. We believe, I believe this could, this country, e pluribus unum, right? It is our logo, it is our motto. Out of many, we are one, right? And that many is every single person. And that means our country is best and strongest when every person grabs an oar and we're rowing in the same direction. And if we do, no one can stop us. But we need everybody to pick up an oar and row. Um, and I would say that, and I believe it. And then I would say that in like 12 states, because the other ones, like, there wasn't a close race that we could flip a seat to be yeah. able to control the House of Representatives or Senator or Governor or presidential race right now, but we'd get to it down the road, but maybe, maybe not. And so you don't go to Alabama, you don't go to Mississippi because you can't win a race there, right? Um, so part of this is you're saying it, and I truly believe it, but then we don't act out our words and our rhetoric because it's the, the, the race is too existential. There's too much on the line. We'll have to get to it down the road. But what you're basically saying is, hey, those voters in Mississippi who might feel that way, too bad, we'll get to you sometime later. But what's the consequence of that? That means that over a two-year period of time, that there were over 300 boil water notices for the people of Jackson, Mississippi, hmm. because they couldn't have clean water because their infrastructure failed. But we'll get to it at some point. Just hold on another day, week, month, year without having clean water for you and your family. And sometime we'll be able to get to it after we get to X, Y, and Z first. Uh-oh. Yeah. Right or, or once we win that political race or, you know, so here's what I love about this conversation, Joe. And and it, this is why, like, you know, I get critique all the time. They're like, why do you call it the hopeful majority? And I'm like, well, maybe I'll call it the exhausted majority. Maybe that's what's in vogue. But, you know, you know, what's 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 relevant and interesting about what you're saying is whenever people ask me in colleges, like, what do you think about that person? What do you think about this person? You know, we had people from Vivek Ramaswamy on to Andrew Yang on to somebody like yourself on. We had Marianne Williamson on. We have political folks, intellectuals, authors, everybody across the board. And one of the things that I find that's so pernicious in our politics right now is that people, I think, are very likely to make assumptions about your intentions. So right now, you just made an honest case where you said, we need everybody to row in the same direction. And I'm in that community in Mississippi because I don't think that those people should have boiled water notices three months down the line. That is nothing to Democrat or Republican. That doesn't have to do with the fact that you might want power. No, it's got to do with the fact that you care. Mm -hmm. And yet somebody that never heard that from you and only saw you in the news would say, 
pick your top three talking points against Democrats and label them against Joe. Yep. We've got to figure out a way to engender some sense of goodwill, right? So that people, because otherwise it's just a recipe for being burnt out at, at minimum and at maximum it's good people stop running for office because mm-hmm. they're like, I just don't want to deal with the shit. Yep. So what is your, not prescription because I, I, I don't want to put that level of burden on it, but how do you think we get to a world in which um, we're more likely to be open about people's intentions? Give people a chance. And and I mean this to the people that you most disagree with. You um, know? Look, the, I'm somewhat of a dinosaur when it comes to politics these days, which is interesting because, you know, I'm in my early 40s and I was took office when I was 32. But um, I... Uh, but everybody likes dinosaurs. Every- <laughs> <laughs> until uh, they come alive. Until exactly. I, I, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing for you. So, look, you know, I, you know look, I, I... We talk about um, compromise, you talk about consensus. Compromise for compromise sake doesn't isn't valuable, yep. right? Like the world is flat versus the world is yeah. There's uh, no reason to be civil well, just for the like, sake of being civil, right? Yeah, hundred um, percent. But I also don't want to be in a place where we all believe the same thing. Like that's not a republic. That's not a democracy. Like that's a scary place. Like the whole point is that you're supposed to have a bunch of different opinions. You're supposed to have a bunch of different backgrounds. You're supposed to have a bunch of different viewpoints and ways of, of life. That's how you learn. That's, that's, that's it for me. Anyway, I think that's exciting. And I think that's what this country was. Do you think founded. spaces exist to have those, those, the, the, that sort of. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think spaces exist. I think what uh, I, I think um, there has been a consistent strategic message put out there that says the, the United States cannot um, accommodate, afford, um, uh, provide certain benefits, opportunities, whatever else, better future for some people, because that's coming out of your future, which is just a lie. Like, it's just flat out not true. Um, there might be policies that have to be tweaked to address some of this. But the idea that somehow we have reached our peak and that whatever success that we have is somehow some fixed number. And in order for you to get yours, someone else has to get less. Absolute bull. Hmm. And I fervently believe that. And I look around not just my home in, in Boston, but I go to West Virginia or I go to Oklahoma or you go to Mississippi and like, they don't believe it either. And that's not what you're, you're, you're not out there working so hard to try to take away something from somebody else. You have to try to provide better for your family and your community and, and your country. Right. And like, hmm. there's so much more that we could do if you weren't being told and messaged to day after day after day that someone else was coming for you. Hmm. because they ain't coming for you. They're protect. They're, they're, they're providing for their family. And because somebody, one person provides for their family or is able to get married or be, is able to say, I love you to somebody else. Doesn't degrade the, my marriage with my wife doesn't degrade the love that we have with our, our kids. Like I wish that for everybody. So, you know, the zero sumness of this, um, the ranking of who values, who is valued and who doesn't, or who is valued more and less there's no more un-American thing than that at the values, right? right. Sadly, we have, we have gone our past, but ranked those people we did in our founding documents, but we strove and we strive still to this day to 
reach those words of a place where everyone is in fact created equal. Uh, so that's what I, I, that's what I take this country to be. And I believe it's an exceptional place and I believe it's a special place, but it takes work. And the other part to this is, yes, there's policies that need to be changed. There's there's structures and incentives that need to be changed to allow for those that investment to take place that isn't taking place. There's also responsibility that needs to be had, right? Mm-hmm. And that we have to acknowledge that, like, people, our system needs to change so that people realize their agency. People also have to realize their agency and realize mm-hmm. that if they vote, people will, um, elected officials will pay more attention. And as gross as that seems, it's also true. Right. Yeah. Um, because if you are an elected official and you are subject to an election every two years or every four years, that time goes by quickly. You have an awful lot on your plate. You can't respond to every phone call, email, be there with your family, do everything that you have to do and build up the political structures to make that more equitable. You have to respond to some of them. And those are hard choices that elected officials have to make, but they have to make them. And so you could say, hey, we want to make, we want, that elected official could say, look, I'm going to, I've got a community that votes at 90%, I've got a community that votes at 10%. I am going to dedicate myself to the community votes for 10%. That's great. You know how hard it is to increase voter turnout in communities that vote for 10%, voter participation is 10%? Yeah. Years, because it's, there's, there are structures in place that, that create that massive power dynamic. Hmm. And so, so- we're expecting an elected official to be able to solve that, like they just can't, right? They can't right. do that by themselves. Right, and, and and it requires a whole of system approach. And I think most people would say that they're they feel disenfranchised by the by the politics, by the sense of a lack of agency. They feel that dread and that apathy, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. In fact, in some ways, I feel like to bridge a current divide, you need to create a new divide. And one of those new divides that people throw around a lot is is another word and it's another buzzword just like compromise but it starts with the e and that's the establishment there's a whole host of politicians now and i think it's not just on the right or on the left i see it across the board that keep critiquing this thing called the establishment and and i'll tell you where i'm going next with the conversations i want to actually get to you as a person in the limited time we have but before we get there i have to ask you like what is this thing called the establishment could, could, could you help me define it? Because I've yet to have somebody actually tell me what it means. And yet you have people across the board organizing on it. So what is the establishment? Look, I think the establishment is is essentially the way the, the folks that are in charge and it's the way things are, right? Um, not the way things we wish they were, the way, the way we would want them to be, right? But it's the it's the, the folks that are in charge and, and in power, right? Um, and the structures that then um, perpetuate from that. Um, and look, man, it is on the one hand easy to criticize that establishment because if you believe that things should be better, then by definition, that's they. That's they, there. and they could be doing better because things get better, right? Um, the hard part is that after, I mean, look, Donald Trump went from being an ultimate outsider to president of the United States. If you're president of the United States, you're the establishment. You have an administration. You have hundreds of thousands of people. Not if I say I don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> The real question is, are you part of the establishment, Joe Kennedy? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I don't think so. Uh, But I don't, I, I think what, um, I think there are, are, um, there are forces in, there are structures out there that are, that help create the way things 
work and operate. And look, things have to work and operate some way. And so that's the way they work and operate. There's bureaucracies, which are maddening, by the way, to everybody, Democrat and Republican, right? And anyone else non like that is a non-political statement, right? People are 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 frustrated by bureaucracy um, and by inefficiency. I, I agree, right? But there's there's also the 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 fact that you can be part of those power structures and recognize those failures and push to try to make them better, more representative, um, uh, more more reflective of a power dynamic that is what I think this country aspires to. Hmm. And that's certainly what I tried to do when I was in office and what I'm trying to do outside of it, right? Um, and one, one thing that I, I wanted to point out real quickly, because you, you had mentioned, you know, um, please the kind of interaction and engagement that your your show has and that you have with with young folks. Um, when I was in office, I was asked to go talk to a bunch of schools because I was young compared to the rest of people in office. And they were like, you know, you seem young, go talk to young people um, as if that necessarily mattered. But like, I confirm it. You seem right. young. <laughs> so, so there you go. <laughs> I remember being at one college and being a, like in a speaking program and there were like seven elected officials. And then it was me, and then there was another elected official talking behind me. And I remember sitting at the crowd, or looking at this crowd, being like, "If I were on a college campus and I was had to listen to seven elected officials talk in a row, like there's probably only one reason why I'd be here, and that was free pizza. And after I got my slices of pizza, I would get up and leave." Um, Welcome to my organizing tactic. Like, why else? Why else? I mean, like, it's a great thing for for college kids, free pizza and free food, and they'll, they'll come. But no one ever asked them a question. No one asked them why they were there. Or ask them what they thought of anything, and so I kind of developed a little shtick, and I would um, I'd always bring up a piece of paper with me, and I would say, "Look, shout out a bunch of shout out what's on your mind, right?" Um, and I get a list of 15, 20, 25 issues, and then I turn back around and say, "Okay, you each get three votes, right? Let's rank them." And you get the audience to then would actually prioritize, right, roughly what those issues were. Right. And then we talk about whatever those top three issues were and then go into Q&A. But at the very least, you got a crowd then that was like had in a, the most basic way, had had their opinions solid hmm. and then tried to engage a conversation around what they thought was important. And it was fascinating. You know, this was now we started this 10 plus years ago. One of the issues that started with was economic, economic mobility. You remember those discussions. Right. It then became economic inequality. It then became economic justice. Right. And there's a difference in the framing of those questions. It's kind of all on the one hand, some level of, um, you know, disparity. But when economic mobility is your ability to move up and down, economic justice is there is a wrong and something needs to right it. And there's a different there's a different policy prescription there. There's a different obligation for government there. There's a different definition of the problem and certainly a different de uh, definition of the solution. But to watch that that question get redefined or that, that, that issue get redefined over time. And so I, I would encourage you, um, I think it would be interesting. And when I was traveling around the country, it'd be interesting to see which ones, you know, 10, seven, eight years ago, healthcare was a big issue. Mm -hmm. Last time I did it a couple of weeks ago, healthcare didn't come up. Yep. Yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, it's interesting yeah. to see how these. So fascinating that you described the shift. First of all, I think that's a fascinating, not, not a routine is a cheap way to say it. I think that's a fascinating thought experiment to do with young people on campus or with any constituent is ask them, shout out what you think. And then you saw the shift from economic mobility all the way to economic justice. And I can already hear somebody that, again, 
operates from a point of, let's say, inherent disagreement with you, say, it's a certain agenda that has been pushed down and it's causing people to think that way. But again, this goes to our point of intentions is let's give people the benefit of the doubt. And let's say that that is a legitimate shift. Mm -hmm. It again begs a fascinating question of the fact that people seem inherently dissatisfied. And I see this across the board again, conservative, liberal, right, left, blue, green, purple, doesn't matter. And the natural question becomes, there seems to be a coalition. There seems to be a coalition that spans party sans ethnicity it reaches the poor white folks in west virginia and it reaches the urban inner city folks in new york city and it's something that president jfk did right and he was fascinating at putting together and engineering that coalition and throughout our country's history there have been different majorities there's been the silent majority they've been the moral majority there is a coalition out there how would you define that coalition because it seems like one of the things to get us out of this mess is we need new leadership that can figure out a way to elevate that. And what do you think are the dimensions of that coalition? I, th I know that's a massive question, but <laughs> you know, you might as well just lay out a, a, someone's presidential campaign right now. Yeah, but, right, perfect. But, but you know, it, like that's where my mind goes is, is what is that coalition? Because there seems to be something there. And it's not just a left thing, it's not just a right thing. No, look, I think there is, um... I mean, you, you, you asked that question, establishment, or kind of, kind of populist and establishment, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's an area where the populist left and the populist right start to um, come back around, right? And, and start to unite again, right? This, this isn't necessarily a spectrum. It is, you know, there, there's there's connections here. Um, and look, I think there is um, 100%. I mean, you, look, you, you, you can feel and you can see the parties changing, right? Um, and party alliance uh, allegiances changing. Um, what Donald Trump has tried to do in terms of the reframing of a Republican Party of being a populist nationalist workers party, um, he is endeavoring to do that. I ultimately do not think he will be successful, but he is certainly endeavoring to do that. The danger of a Democratic Party is thinking that academically right means that you are right all the time and coding yourself in like the warm blanket of white papers and thinking that that is somehow going to create is solve your problem because you can lecture to somebody else as to why, you know, the right tax policy or the right trade policy is in fact perpetuating a status quo that has led to the complete erosion of their way of life. Um, you know, I'll, I'll being parochial here um, in Massachusetts, you'll get a plenty of folks that um, are strong advocates for ending coal mining. Right, mm -hmm. um, and for a transition to clean uh, renewable fossil fuel or re clean renewable energy as quickly as possible, right? Makes sense. Um, you will. I bring up to to many of them, kind of, what do you think about fishing? And they'll say, well, um, you know, you can't have fishermen without fish, so we need to have fish. But like this gets complicated, and mm -hmm. there's all questions about catch shares and and how much you do and quotas and all the rest of it. But you know, this is a part of who we are. It's part of our heritage. There is a cod that it hangs from the ceiling of the Massachusetts State House, right? There is a cape named after mm -hmm. a fish, Cape Cod. It's a big part of our history. Those coal miners are efficient, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's the same thing. Mm. And you might say, well, the kind of fishing doesn't have the world changing impacts of fossil fuel development and coal mining. Perhaps not, but those coal miners went into the belly of a mountain and took out a rock that helped build the industrial might of this country and made this country what we are. And before you celebrate putting them out of work, maybe we say, thank you. Hmm. Maybe we say, you know what? 
something tells me a coal miner in West Virginia knows, knew that that was a dangerous job when they started. The fishermen up in Gloucestershire did. There's a statue to all the ones that we lost at sea. Why don't we ask them what they want for their future and how we can help and what it is that we could do to help them provide for their families with the gratitude of a hundred plus years of industrial might, the world of what the likes of which this world has never seen, because we owe that one a huge debt. That is a very different way of framing that question and that transition. And I do think that if you come at it differently, if you recognize the, not just the dignity of that work, but the enormous sacrifice and pride that they rightly have for having done that work, right? The, that energy was froth in the latte that I would get when I would go to Starbucks. You, 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 God, you can't. Yeah. It's I I was just uh, if you're if you're watching this on uh, if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple and not on YouTube, I've been taking like vigorous notes. And what I just wrote down there is what does a what does a Cape Cod fisherman and a West Virginia coal miner have in common? And that is an identity, you know, and and what I love about what you're saying is there's a there's an empathy required to not only understand that story, but then articulate it in a way in which you can at least understand why there's deep resistance to a legislative priority you might have, right? But no, you're gonna get raked over the coals for that. And where this naturally goes for me is when I hear you tell that story, one of my favorite things to do in these conversations is I can tell when somebody feels a a real responsibility or like a sense of, I I want to fix that. And it it seems like it's coming from you. You you, you have this desire for public service. And there's like, I know, I'm sure there's days where it sucks and I'm sure there's days that are really exciting, but I can tell that there's a real genuine desire. And it's the same desire I've seen from Republican politicians as well, some of them that I've talked to. And I, I position it in this way because I have to ask, and this might seem like a personal question, but it's just, it's a curiosity I have is as a Kennedy, do you feel a certain sense of responsibility towards this American experiment? Do you feel um, a, a sense of of belief that something has to be done? And I say that not to position you in this giant thing, but to actually talk to you as an individual, because what I've loved about this conversation is how powerful you see the world through your own eyes. But I have to ask you that question. Do you feel that sense of, of responsibility and weight? I don't think the sense of responsibility or opportunity that I feel is any greater or less than, than somebody else that I'd like to think has a kind of observant and informed view of the world, mm-hmm. right? I don't think it's more because of, of who I am or, or last name or how I was raised and reared at all. The one thing that I would say is that we, I grew up in a household that was surrounded by um, and with people that were trying to influence that system and to some extent did and didn't, right? Um, but, you know, when my dad had friends over when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 years old, there were other members of Congress, other senators. You, you met folks that were active and engaged in the service of our public. And so it wasn't like some far off thing where you could say, oh gosh, how would one go about doing that? It was, that's just what people did. That's what your, my, my dad did for work. It's what I did for work for a long time. And there's ways in which you can do that. Obviously, that isn't just just through elective office, although elective office, if you want to change laws, it's it's got to be through elective office. But there's it's not because of, you know, some deep sense of, of responsibility because of who, we, who I am mm-hmm. or the family we're born into. It's a sense of our country is better than the narrative we are telling people. 
And if you go to some of these places that I think the left doesn't go and the right doesn't go and hear voices there that we are not incentivized to hear and just listen to what they have to say about their own stories, because you might be wrong on facts and figures. You're not wrong on the narrative that happened, what happened to your family. I, I'm not going to convince you that that wasn't the way in which you tell that story isn't the way in which it happened. There's normally a kernel of truth in that narrative, and sometimes a lot more than a kernel. And there is pride, there's aspiration, there's hope, there is fear. Um, but if you can listen to it, right, um, and you hear it, and like people are inconsistent, people um, can hold different ideas in tension. They're not always going to act 100% the way you would want, expect them to rationally. We're human beings, like, welcome to the club. Mm-hmm. But the idea that as a population, that one, you don't want the best that you possibly can for your family, of course they do. That if they don't want the best they possibly can for their community, of course they do. That they don't want better for their neighbor, of course they do. You wouldn't, I do. I'd love my neighbors to succeed. Because why wouldn't you? They're your neighbors, they're your friends, they're your family, they're your community. Of course you would. That's what every community feels. Our country's at its best when we can recognize that and replicate that and not listen to folks that will profit Hmm. politically and economically off of putting you against each other. And as you fight over those, the, the, the scraps or what have left over without recognizing that those folks that are pitting you against each other are taking the most prize. In some, in some ways it's almost like, uh, people are being played in, in a game, uh, and an outrage industrial complex that is just generating a desire and incentive structure that doesn't help anybody. Uh, and that that is something that I think, again, people across the board believe in and, and can understand. I want to be very respectful of your time. There's one last question I've got for you, and it it's a question I ask everybody. It's what I always end the show with. Um, and, and the question is about why, because I think one of the reasons why uh, I call this the hopeful majorities, I think people are looking for a sense of purpose. I think people are looking for direction. And oftentimes people have a really good answer to why. And when you can share each other's why, I think it gets us to a better place because we understand, well, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you think what you do? And so the question that I've got for you is, what is your why? And and what drives you? Um, my why is because um, I believe in this country, because I believe um, that people can make a difference, because I want my kids to be able to grow up in a place that is as optimistic about the future as um, it was for me. And I don't want, given that the challenges that my that we confront today, I don't want my kids to turn around to me in 20 years and say, why didn't you do anything about it? Um, but um, I've had the great privilege of traveling all over the world. I've lived in other countries around the world. Um, you know, I, I served in, uh, in a war zones. I've been to um, plenty of, of developing countries. One of the, the things that strikes me most, right? Um, I have never been to a country, a place where if you don't pick up a ball and throw it to a bunch of kids, they don't pick it up and throw it back, right? Um, and we have all sorts of differences and all sorts of disagreements and all sorts of everything else. But, you know, kids are kids and play is play. And if we can kind of center that and recognize that each one of us 
our most basic wants, Maslow's hierarchy, if you want to get academic, but our most basic wants are what we all want to replicate around the country, around the world. And if we can find a way to unify those structures rather than pitting us against each other, man, we're in great shape. Mm. We've got the rest of it already figured out. But let's not fall for those voices there that are benefiting from that conflict and um, benefit they will and the benefit they have. I appreciate that. And and I can already hear some people saying, ask ask him about Trump. What does he think about Trump? Ask, what are those voices? Be more specific. And I, and I know when I had on Vivek Ramaswamy, people are like, ask him about Biden. What does he think about that person, that person? And actually, the reason why I purposely stay out of it is not to not ask the hard question. The reason why I stay out of it is because I think that when you pitch what you just pitched to most people without identifying an enemy, but saying that I think we can actually build a world in which we all see the fact that the kid that we might disagree with also wants to throw that ball back at you that wants to be there. That in fact, as the AI algorithm, as you can tell on, on YouTube agrees that there is something there. And so I purposefully wanted to cast your ideas in a way that wasn't stricken by party label, but was just about what you thought. And so I appreciate your time and, and thank you for doing the work that you do. And I, I hope we'll have you back. Thanks for having me. Good luck. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for coming on the show. I appreciated having you. Thank you for an honest dialogue. Thank you for an honest conversation. I hope you listening found the conversation interesting. And importantly, if you're critical of certain parts, if you wanted to give feedback, comments, like, subscribe, make your voice heard. The hopeful majority is not meant to create moderates or ideological centrists. It's meant to create productive, honest discussion, dialogue to understand each other's commonalities and our humanity. Every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, we drop a weekly episode. We need to build the show together because you and I are going to build that hopeful majority, which allows us to overcome the toxic polarization that is miring our country because, man, we need it for 2024. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for all you do, and thank you for listening.